Hold on to your butts. <laughs> Boop. You were saying? Oh, hello. Welcome to episode 74 of the Silver <laughs> Breakfast Club podcast. Joined once again by my co-host, Mary, a five-foot Canadian who is too short to drive a rig, so she is protesting by drinking the entire country's <laughs> supply of Labatt's Blue. I am merely a broken truck horn named Darren. Hey, Mary, how are you? <laughs> oh, my God. First of all, you are more than a broken truck horn. And secondly, I'm 5'2". There, I finally oh, admitted yeah. my actual height. <laughs> Congratulations, you finally get there. Uh, so, how many centimeters I am? That's a lot of centimeters. So, so, <laughs> so, what's new? How's it going? How's everything going up there in old Canada? I hear a lot, of, a lot of action going on, I see. Yeah, there is. There's a lot of action in Ottawa right now and elsewhere. And here we are protesting. You know what? There's a lot of action, Mary, is 1860s Southeast Kentucky. But before we get to that, as I am host, I must ask you the question. I was about to ask you, though, how you're doing. Oh, who cares? I'm fine. Just <laughs> trying to be polite. Of course. So, Mary, that being said, what, what's the libation for the evening? Tonight, I am drinking Ransack the Universe by Collective Arts. It's, it's out, a say. Out, of Ham- <laughs> out of Hamilton. And I am drinking it out of my George Henry Thomas mug because he is going to figure quite prominently tonight in our episode. And what, okay. what, sir, are you drinking? Oh, thanks for asking. I'm drinking, it's called Shindig from Cowbell right here. And that is from somewhere in parts unknown to Canada as well. And I'm drinking it out of my North Civil War Champions mug because this battle we're going to talk about is the first win in the Western theater specifically, it really is. anywhere for the Union. So I felt it was necessary. So that's that's where we are. So kind of jump into this, Mary. We've talked a little bit about the Western mm-hmm. theater, specifically Kentucky in the past. So while the war is raging in the East, both the Union and the Confederacy are each jockeying for the hopeful control of those four border states, right? Yep. Maryland, Delaware, Missouri, and Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Each of those states had their own level of importance for the governments, but Kentucky was the one that both Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis really, really wanted. Right, it bordered northern states such as Illinois and Indiana and Ohio, as well as some key southern states like Tennessee and Virginia. Right, whichever side controlled Kentucky would gain that key launching pad into yep. the north or the south via a wide array of rivers and all kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Lincoln personally felt it was important not just because it was the state he was born in, but all for those economic and military reasons. You know, they had the Ohio River on the uh, Kentucky Ohio border mm-hmm. was a huge shipping and commerce avenue. You know, he had that quote, I hope to have God on my side, but I must have Kentucky. He also said, I think to lose Kentucky is nearly the same as to lose the whole game. So Kentucky, as the war goes on, is going to get extremely, extremely important. Well, they but they were also the ones that too, they sort of became a Confederate state at some point, like they were pseudo admitted, it was divided. But that was also because of the geography, because in the south of Kentucky, you had, um, you know, more that they were living the southern lifestyle. And in the north of Kentucky, it was more that industrial kind of lifestyle. And they grew different crops as well in both the south and the north. But yeah, they, you know, if he lost Kentucky, that was probably it. It was a lot like Missouri. It was so divided and it was like a powder keg. Well, it was definitely diverse. I mean, Kentucky's citizens were split on most of the issues of the war. Mm-hmm. Almost twenty percent almost twenty percent of the state's residents were slaves. Yeah. And but the white residents, they really didn't have any issue with slavery, really one way or the other. No. What they cared more about were those economic leanings of the North you mentioned, because mm-hmm. because uh, that's what they, you pay with your purse. That's really what they cared about. So Kentucky, out of its own real interest, chose to remain neutral at the outset of the conflict. In the spring of 1861, Kentucky Governor, the great Bariah 
egg McGoffin <laughs> McMuffin. Despite his pro-Southern leanings, because he was very much pro-Southern, was forced to declare the state neutral as the state legislature dictated it, right? Kentucky would send no troops for the Union nor the Confederacy, and it would remain neutral until September 3rd, 1861, when the rebels forced the state's hand by invading it. Remember? Yeah, they did, yes. Right. You did an episode about that. We, that was the date, if you remember, Mayor, that Gideon Pillow, remember him? Yep. Under the Confederate General Leonidas Polk, mm-hmm. invaded and occupied the city of Columbia, Kentucky, yep. on that southwest corner of the state, just north of that Tennessee border, mm-hmm. right? So now Kentucky finds itself dragged into the Civil War without even really wanting it, right? Yep. And if, but not only that, but if they found themselves in the center of it, they were on the quasi epicenter of the Western theater. Once in Kentucky, the Confederate, they formed that army, the Army of Central Kentucky, under General Albert Sidney Johnston there. At one time, he was one of the best, one of the best generals the Confederacy had. And um, he'll set up his headquarters there in Columbus, right there. The army is going to be spread. It's going to be spread throughout the state with Simon Baldwin Buckner, situated in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And its right flank, the one we're going to really talk about tonight, is placed in that Cumberland Gap where Kentucky, Tennessee, and Virginia all meet in those Appalachian Mountains. Yep, and that's where we have we find Zola Coffer, who we've mentioned him in an episode before. And this is where he's guarding it. And here's the thing about the Cumberland Gap, right? For one, it was the right flank. It was extremely important for both armies because it was the doorway into the West. And it was also the pass to the Appalachian Mountains. And really what it did is it offered a path of invasion for both armies. For the Union, it gave them a path to strike south into Tennessee, just north of Knoxville. For the rebels, it gave them a way to attack further north into Kentucky. So both armies really wanted that Cumberland Gap. So it was important. And to what you just said, the guy who's put in charge of holding it, that right flank of the army, is a guy named Brigadier General Felix K. Zollicoffer. Yeah. And he actually leaves Knoxville to go guard this area. So this means like the eastern end of the defensive line extends from Columbus, Kentucky, you know, through this Cumberland Gap. Mm-hmm. So it's November that Zollicoffer is going to advance into Kentucky. He, Mill Springs is going to become his his winter headquarters. Before we get to that far, let's have some fun with him and talk about him. We haven't really talked too, too much. Yes. I just like saying Zollicoffer. Just a fun word Sounds, to say. He, he, he had was, a bit of an affliction that will uh, do him was, not very good. It's the exact same affliction I have, except I happen to have something. Oh, he was short too? Yes. All right. Was, he was a Tennessee. He was a Tennessean born in Maury, not Mary <laughs> County, in 1812, and he was a descendant of Swiss immigrants. He became a printer in 1828 after dropping out of Jock at Jackson College in Columbia, Tennessee. He would later become a printer at the Knoxville Register, and then he became an editor of the Columbia Observer. So he was kind of a newspaper man, right? In 1835, he married Louisa Pocahontas Gordon a descendant of Pocahontas Mary from that Disney movie. Wow. That's what he was related to. <laughs> He'd get his initial military experience fighting the Seminoles in Florida in 1836 as a second lieutenant in the Tennessee militia. So now he's got a little bit of military experience. Now, after the war, he's going to dabble in politics and become a state senator in 1849 as a member of the Whig Party. He'd be elected to U.S. Congress in 1853, and he would support fellow Tennessean John Bell in the 1860 presidential election, mm-hmm. right? The thing about him, though, when the Secession talks started, especially in Tennessee, he actually tried to stop it. He wanted yeah. nothing to do with it. Using his political connections, he was able to join that state's delegation for that Washington Peace Conference there. He was a guy, he did support states' rights, but he wanted no part of secession. So, of course, Tennessee is going to uh, is going to officially secede on June 8th, 1861 and join the Confederacy. Almost immediately after that, Zollicoffer is going to get appointed the position of Brigadier General of the Provisional Army of Tennessee. And then he'll soon later get the same title uh, in the Confederacy 
Confederate States of America. Now, once he's in the army, now he's on board. He wasn't sure of secession. Now he's in. Now he's all he's all in. On July 26, 1861, he and his men are going to be sent to Knoxville, right? Yep. And their job is going to be to suppress the anti-secession movement in East Tennessee, where he became commander of the District of East Tennessee. He would have, he would basically arrest anybody any way he wanted for being pro-union. So this guy did a complete 180 yeah. is what he did. And well, it's funny you know, too when you think about you know where he is that they're arresting these you know anti-secessionists and then flash forward a few years later where we did that episode about Knoxville and where Burnside's there and how the city just completely like it will go one way or the other you know it's like there's it's almost like it's divided so it's interesting to see it this way early in the war and then at the end of the war when Burnside is occupying it they're like oh yay we're union again it definitely was was that but you can see the pieces started to move on the chessboard though on September 15th Albert City Johnson he's going to be named commander of confederate forces in the western theater Mm -hmm. now this front we talked about is a long and wide front ranging from the Appalachians all the way to Mississippi Mississippi River somewhere somewhere there's Kokomo in there probably (laughs) but he had a big he had a big long range now that is so much to would, handle for one guy he right? would he would but he he does keep Zollicoffer on as a brigadier commander so he he's not the head anymore he's just a brigadier general now mm-hmm. in that district of east tennessee Zollicoffer, the thing about him you could say many things about him the one thing you can say he's not passive even though his job is to hold that crucial cumberland gap he decides he wants to be aggressive and he's going to move his army to us a little while ago uh, from East Tennessee to fight, you know, Union forces on the border in Kentucky, right? Yeah. November 27th, 1861, Zollicoffer is going to cross into Kentucky with 3,500 men who are mostly armed with old crappy flintlocks or nothing at all. And we'll yeah. get to that in a little while, how that's going to be an issue. He'll move west to Mill Springs, Kentucky, a town just south of the Cumberland River. But he'll get there with relative ease. Now, the thing about this thing, though, right? This move to Mill Springs by Zollicoff is a total YOLO situation. He didn't have permission to do it. He doubles down on it on December 5th, 1861. He goes further, crosses his men north over the Cumberland River to set up his camp at a place called Beach Grove. So now not only has he left where he's supposed to go, he's crossed the river without permission into into the um, over the Cumberland River north. And now he finds himself in a situation where his back is to the river. And but he doesn't think it's too big of a deal there are federal troops nearby in somerset kentucky but he thinks it's it's, he thinks it's a good defendable spot so he's going to set up his winter camp and he's going to build cabins dqs entrenchments (laughs) anything he can to hunker down for the winter there in uh, his beach grove and eventually what happens is the union kind of gets wind of what's going on and they're going to send uh thomas to go after him except thomas is told to go after another guy too and that's crittenden who is zollicoffer's superior and if you've heard the name crittenden before yes you are correct it was his brother thomas that fights for the union this time we are talking general george bibb crittenden his brother who fights for the confederacy you know what's so funny about zollicoffer right he's a confident fellow mary he he does what he does he feels what he does he goes into south kentucky and you know what the first thing he does? He issues a proclamation of the citizens of South Kentucky. He does. And so what he, he doesn't realize about them is that not very far from where he is, is a church that is a stop on the Underground Railway. So I just happen to have a copy of that thing right here, Mary. It says, the brigade I have the honor to command is here for no purpose of war upon Kentuckians, but to repel those northern hordes who with arms in their hands are attempting the subjugation of a sister southern state. So he's like yelling 
by himself at the moon here. Yeah. Because to your point, there's not he doesn't have a lot of support around him. No. He's a he what he has to do with a hero complex is what he has. Big time. You know, he must be from Massachusetts. That arrogance. <laughs> but real quick, we just we'll set up set up his army real quick. Let me know how this whole thing goes. You mentioned Crittenden, right? Yeah. So the district of East Tennessee has about six thousand guys spread mm-hmm. over two brigades. Zollicoffer is going to have one. He's going to command the first brigade. And a guy named William H. Carroll is going to command the second. They're going to be under control of George Bibb Crittenden, who was chilling in, in Knoxville, completely unbeknownst to what the hell was going on. Yeah. He's under the impression Zollicoffer is just still safely nestled in the Cumberland Gap. So you know what happens? He's going to find out, not only does Thomas find out, but Crittenden does. He's yeah. going to find out that Zollicoffer went off the reservation, is now encamped north of the Cumberland River at Beach Grove, and he's pissed. And you can't blame the guy. I mean, he must have spilt on his bib. He was so mad. <laughs> oh, my God. I was waiting for a joke about that. So bad. <laughs> but he's going to immediately, he's going to immediately yeah. tell Zollicoffer to get the friggin' hell out of there. Yeah. Uh, out of Kentucky and move south um, of that Cumberland River again to back to uh, back to Mill Springs because he knew that he was a sitting duck. If the feds ever massed their army, he was completely SOL and JWF. Sure out of luck and jolly well, you know good, what. Yeah. That's what was going to happen to him, right? The northern troops in the area are in the Army of Ohio under Don Carlos Buell, mm-hmm. right? He's sitting up in Louisville. He will get word on December 29th that Zollicoffer's brigade has crossed into Kentucky into Beach Grove, and he wants him gone. Yeah. So everybody wants him gone, right? And who does he bring in? He brings in his, his one of his division commanders to deal with this annoyance in southeastern Kentucky, George Henry Thomas, right? Yes. He's in charge of the first division. He's sitting in a town called Bardiston, Kentucky, mm-hmm. which is about 100 miles away. But he's going to tell him to drive south in the winter, in the cold, in the muck, to go ahead and drive Zollicoffer out of Kentucky. And you won't believe what holds him up is weather and bad roads. And this is like, I was thinking about this about Thomas today, you know, so many times in the Civil War, he gets held up by weather and bad roads. And I think he's just the type of guy that it's like, he's like Eeyore. Oh, well, he was like, oh, we'll no. that. like so, just that that whole like, shitty things are happening to him. And so Thomas doesn't reach the area until mid January. It's January 17th, 1862. By the time he gets there and he's going to set up camp at a place called Logan's Crossroads. Well, he, he leaves on December 31st, yeah. 1861. Okay. He, Dick Clark was probably in his second year doing that show in 1861. <laughs> God. Right? So, so he, he's div- his division is 4,400 guys. Mm-hmm. And they're going to begin that March towards Somerset, Kentucky. He'll have a brigade under Ma- uh, Marlon Manson. We talked about him guys from the fourth Kentucky, 10th Indiana and 14th Ohio. Plus a couple regiments from Robert Latimer McCook's third brigade, which was the second Minnesota and that ninth Ohio. Throw in the 12th Cavalry and Samuel Carter's John 12th Brigade and Battery C of the 1st Ohio Light Infantry under Captain Dennis, uh, Dennis Kenny, all for good measure, right? So that's what he's got, right? Interesting thing so, about the 9th Ohio is they are the only troops that have seen combat to this point. And that's going to be the same for the Confederates, too. Mm-hmm. When, we, when we talk about this battle here in a little while, these guys, it's, it's you know, like we say, it's not easy being green, especially in no. the Civil War, right? Now, we mentioned the distance, about 100 miles, and you mentioned a little bit they were doing it while Mother Nature was clearly on the rebels' side, right? Yeah. The march was dreadful. You know, Thomas is going south. Just imagine you're walking in this this crap with rain and sleet. It's turning the roads into mud pits. Now, the thing, you mentioned how long it takes them to get there. Yeah. Thomas anticipated this march was going was gonna to take three days. That's what he told, right? Mm-hmm. It took him 18 days to get there. Now, Mary, I'm not a betting man, okay? 
but I will bet your last IPA <laughs> that this was the this was the beginning of the Thomas's slow mantra in Washington. I bet this is where it's oh exactly, and it all has to do with with the weather, and that's the thing. It's like, but I think they were, we're we'll talk a little bit more about this at the end with something that happens after this battle, but I think the going against Thomas was already happening because of the state that he hailed from of Virginia. Right. No, no doubt. But you know, when we talk specifically about Nashville, you know, yes. later, right. They're not going to Nashville today, but he gets that. He's accused of being slow. Exactly. I'm, I'm going to get this because this is the very beginning. I bet you this is where it came from. Anyway, I, I think so January. too. And it's easy to shit all over Thomas because he's from Virginia, right? Like that's what these guys are doing. They're like, Oh, this is easy. He's from Virginia. Oh, yeah. No, there's no question. So January 7th, 1862, it's a new year. The vanguard of, of Thomas's army is going to start to arrive in, at Logan's Crossroads, where you mentioned. And this is about 10 miles north of where Zala Copper's position is on Beach Grove. It's about seven miles west of that, of that Thomas Somerset, right? Because of the weather, again, Thomas has got to sit and wait. He probably said, oh, no, about 100 oh. times while he was sitting there waiting, right? General Thomas had wait. never seen such a mess. <laughs> <laughs> Never seen such bad weather. Oh, no. oh, <laughs> but but he has to wait for the rest of his army to make it to Logan's Crossroads because they're slow, right? He'll yep. send a message to the Union troops in Somerset. He's going to get three regiments of artillery. So he's, he's, he's trying to get the pieces together the best mm -hmm. he can. Now, meanwhile, on that rebel side, around the same time that Thomas is approaching Logan's Crossroads, uh, Crittenden, who's still in Knoxville now, is getting more and more scared of Zala Copper's position and that in um and he's gonna head out to Mill Springs personally because he's like, all right, I'm gonna go down there and see what the freak's going on. He will get quite a surprise when he gets to Mill Springs because when he arrives, he expects to find Zollicoffer and he finds no one there. It's kind of like a Friday night in my life, right? He he's gonna he's or gonna mine. learn okay, sure. <laughs> he's gonna find he's gonna learn that Zollicoffer has disobeyed orders or ignored them altogether. But he was supposed to get back south of the river and wait for him in Mill Springs. For whatever reason, he just didn't do it. So he's still across the bridge there over the river north. Now, the weather, again, is is haunting Thomas, but it's also haunting the Confederates yeah. too, right? So the, the way that the weather was going, the Cumberland River was really swollen was, and really yeah. moving, moving fast. Yeah. This water was moving faster than you at happy hour, right? That's how fast it was Ooh. really, really moving, okay? Was, you know, don't you see seen me at happy hour. And just, yeah, you saw me so trudge into that bar in a nor'easter. I moved pretty fast in that. <laughs> but anyways, <laughs> but the problem was is that river became so swollen yep. that even if Zolokoffer tried to get across the river, he can't. He's no. stuck there. So he so he has to hope for the best, which is going to be an oops, you know, situation. Now, Crittenden, he realizes that Zolokoffer is there, but then he realizes that um Thomas's army has not fully arrived yet. No. So he perhaps thinks there might be an opportunity here, right? Uh -huh. He starts to think that maybe Zollicoffer and Crittenden can go on the offensive and hit Thomas before his army gathers. He blows that conch shell about the weather yeah. slowing down, right? That's what's going on. So he's going to have Zollicoffer's brigade march north towards those Union positions at Logan's Crossroads. Yeah. Except what happens is one of Thomas's guys, his name Shope, somehow he manages to get across, and they don't the, the Confederates don't realize it. Nineteenth of January, um, about six thirty in the morning. Yeah, those first elements of Confederates are going to begin to arrive at the crossroads. This will be the Rebel cavalry out of the Fourth Tennessee under a guy named Benjamin Branner, in the Fifth Tennessee under guess who? Guess what his name? Who commands the Fifth Tennessee cavalry is Mary? 
George McClellan. How about that? Oh my oh, God, okay. really? I'm going. I'm going to bet the fifth was slower than the fourth when they got there. I bet you the fourth. I was going to say, there. did he actually arrive there on time? <laughs> Poor McClellan. We love we love McClellan. There's <laughs> <laughs> two of them. There's two of them. Okay, and so the Rebel cavalry is going to get there. And they're going to hit that picket line. Mm-hmm. Now the Tenth Indiana set up a picket line under William Kyes with four companies of that for our First Kentucky Cavalry, yep. commanded by Frank Wolford. Right. They're going to set up uh, just on this hill, just um, just outside of the crossroads. Now, these pickets are going to hold back the rebel cavalry, and eventually they're going to get reinforced by the rest of the 10th Indiana. Yeah. So they got a pretty, a pretty good line there now, right? With this cavalry engaged uh, with the Indiana men, Crittenden is going to advance Zola Copper's full brigade with Edward Walthall's 15th Mississippi in the lead. They're going to be the first element. The road still sucks. It's muddy. It's slippery. And the rain was off and on. Many of these, so these troops are all going to start arriving piecemeal. They're all going yeah. to get there when they get there. You know, it's like, whatever. Now, the other issue, too, is they're all marching on the single road towards Logan's Crossroads. That was right before that, that preceded that hill I talked about. Mm-hmm. Zollicoffer's numbers are more. They will push back that 10th Indiana after a full hour of fighting. And the 10th Indiana is going to scatter down the hill. And they're going to run into this big clearing in front of this woodlot. And in front of the woodlot is this big, long fence, this post and rail fence that is going to be, right, it's going to have the woods behind them with this field in front of them, right? And that's kind of how it's going to set up. So you got the 10th Indiana is going to, as fellows back behind the fence, they'll get supported by the 4th Kentucky under Colonel Speed Fry. We'll talk about Speed Fry here in a little bit. And a dismounted cavalry from that 1st Kentucky. Yeah, and it's actually... um... Speed Fry gets brought into the battle because of um, Colonel Frank Wolford, who falls back to make a defensive stand. Um, and he goes back to the camp of the 4th Kentucky to war- to warn Fry about what's going on. Fry ends up leading his men in the attack and joins the 10th Indiana, who are struggling because of this ravine that there is running parallel to and in front of their position. And... So Zollicoffer has his troops kind of in this ravine, and it's kind of the perfect position for them to kind of knock back the Union forces. They have that main battle line that's going to be set up on that post and rail fence. Now, the rebels are advancing. They have that ravine you talked about. Yeah. And Fry sees the 15th Mississippi trying to flank him on his left. and yeah. He's pissed. He's going to stand up on the fence. He's going to raise his sword. He's going to yell, stand up and fight like men, yells the Mississippi men, right? Yeah. Now, the Rebs seeing battle, like we said, many of them for the first time are going to be confused and the terrain starts to mess them up. You know what happens with these things. Now, Zollicoffer is leading his brigade and he's up front with a guy named David Cummings of the 19th Tennessee. They're going to be on the far left of the Confederate Army with that 20th Tennessee and that 15th Mississippi on their right. Mm-hmm. Just imagine how it's going to be set up, right? Zollicoffer is bubbling along, okay? Yep. He starts to get fired from his fronts. And for whatever reason, he thinks it's his own men, right? He's going to ride ahead to see the situation in his fronts. And who is he going to meet? Fry. He's going to meet Colonel Speed Fry, yeah. commander of the 4th Union, Kentucky, and who, ironically, he rode forward as well to see what the hell was going yeah, on. Yeah, he's going out to scout. And, I mean, the problem with Zollicoffer um, is that he's nearsighted. Which is right, what my a... issue is. And of course, like, I wear glasses, but I don't know that Zollicoffer did. Zollicoffer well, had also shaved his beard, too, before the battle, thinking he wouldn't be recognized. 
Well, I've, he had one one thing going against him that you just said. He was nearsighted. He had one thing going for him and that it was yeah. raining. And because it was raining, he had a big white raincoat exactly. on. Yeah. It made him look like Doc Brown from Back in the Future. <laughs> that's Frank Scott. Amazing. Okay? Oh my God. And that's that. And so he rides up. So Zolokoffer is going to meet meet uh, Fry, and they're going to assume that he's he's going to assume Fry's a rebel and orders him to please stop firing on my men. Fry assumes the same thing. He's like, okay, well. Um, I, he says, I'm sorry. I would never intentionally fire my own men. I'm sorry about that. So all of a sudden, for some friggin' reason, Captain Henry M.R. Fogg, yep. one of the guys on Zollicoffer's staff, comes riding out of the woods full speed, firing his pistol at the Wild West at Fry, because he knows he's a federal officer. Yeah. Zollicoffer doesn't, right? Fry and his men are going to quickly figure out what the hell's going on. Yeah. And they start firing. And moments later, both Zollicoffer, okay, and Fogg are both dead. Now, Zollicoffer is going to be the first general officer to be killed in the Western Theater. Now, Speed Fry, after the war, Mary, he's going to claim he's the one who shot Zollicoffer. Yep, he does. Making the making the phrase, the phrase Speed Kills really cool to think about, <laughs> it, right? I wonder so, if that's where that hails from. I, I, I'm pretty sure that's where it came from. I think that's exactly <laughs> where it came from. So you, you can just go ahead and put that on that's Twitter. Gonna, that's no what I'm going yeah, to start talking about that. What definitely do it. So, but all of a sudden, once the, once Zolikoffer is down, their troops, knowing their leader is dead, are thrown into all kinds of confusion. They stop advancing on that left front at the Rebel Lines. Yep. On the eastern side, just a few hundreds away to their right, the 15th Mississippi and that 20th Tennessee – are going to begin to launch an attack of their own just themselves against uh, towards that Union line behind the fence. Now, they're going to be targeting that 4th Kentucky and 1st Kentucky dismounted cavalry. Now, the Rebs are going to hit the fence full speed. It's going to be so brutal that they're going to be hand-to-hand combat. They're sticking the bayonets with the fences at each other. That's how close they are. Oh I'll just try to strike the opponents. Now, the, this is, again, this is just two regiments going at it. Now, they're also going to try to get around that Union left, and they're going to get it. They're going to get around the Union left, and at that very moment they get there, what happens? That battery C from the First Ohio Light Infantry starts opening up on their right flank, like yeah. out of a movie. Mm-hmm. Come on, this is on again. This is on and off rain while this is all going on. Now, more Union troops are going to arrive. We're talking Second Minnesota and Ninth Ohio from yeah. the Cooks Brigade, right? And they're going to fall into Union line. Don't forget, Thomas's men, they're all getting there at different times. Yeah, and, and Thomas, kind of, I think, at this point has arrived on the battlefield, too. He's getting there. Yep. You know, it must have been, well, it didn't take as fast as it was to get to Chattanooga, so he took his time getting this one, <laughs> right? But the Rebs are going to get some help for themselves as well. That 25th Tennessee is going yep. to get there under Sidney Stanson. And the 28th under John Murray, uh, Tennessee is going to get there. So they're going to finally make the field as well. But the problem is, is the roads again. Yeah, they're because the muddy. roads are so yeah, because the roads are so bad. This is the only guys Crit didn't get there. Yeah, right. So once again, and the other thing, for whatever reason, he doesn't send his cavalry. He doesn't send them. Well, do you think maybe it's because they couldn't get down the roads because the weather was so I, bad I, and like the I, roads I were assume, just torn I mean, right up? Like, I would. Th- I'm sure there was a reason why, but it, it seemed they were conspicuously absent. Uh, if you look at this. Well, it's the um, same with like Thomas's artillery. Like he's got all this artillery, but he can't completely utilize it at this battle because of the weather and the roads, right? It's yeah, yeah. really playing havoc against them both sides, actually. That's true. You know, so that this weather is screwing, it's it up, but it's also affecting the men who are there. Remember I mentioned a while ago they had flintlocks? Yeah. They had those old flintlocks. That well, would suck in the, the rain. 
That's the, was the problem because the off and on rain, they many of them got wet and they didn't shoot. Only a handful had muskets, and amazingly, only 20% of the rebels engaged in this battle were able to fire. Two to 10 were able to fire. Many got so pissed, they started breaking them off the sides of trees, smashing them. Oh, yeah, I was reading about that. Like, holy shit. And, And to make things even worse, you know, for the rebels more federal troops are going to start to arrive under the first and second Tennessee. Yep. These are union guys, by the way, in the 12th Kentucky and uh, from Carter's 12th, they're going to arrive right on the right flank of those 15th Mississippis and those 20th mm-hmm. Tennessees who have just been getting raked by, by artillery fire. Yep. At this point, Mary Thomas's, Oh no, turns into, Oh yeah. yeah. Cause he goes, you know what he does? <laughs> Cause he turns into Kool-Aid man. He advances everybody forward. He, he does. Okay? Including the ninth Ohio, they attack from the right and they suddenly just charge and they make this, like the, this bayonet charge against the rebels left. And these are the guys that had, had these were the only ones to have seen action and they're primarily German and they're commanded by a guy named Gustav Kameling. Ka- and he says to him, Camerling. Camerling. He Kammerling. says, Camerling. 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 Okay. Just like saying it. Camerling. Okay. I think Camerling's so. Camerling's all, all a cover. Okay. <laughs> They're from Cincinnati, by the way. They go are. Bengals, they are. By the way. <laughs> yes. Go Bengals. So he's, Camerling says to them, if it gets too hot for you, shut your eyes, my boys, and charge. And so these are the, the this ninth Ohio is the only, they're the only ones that have seen actual action in the war, you know, prior to this battle. But like, as you said, like Thomas is Kool-Aid manning it in and doing his thing. And, and they're driving the Rebs back. Zolikoff is down. Their leadership is questionable. The weather's bad. They can't shoot. They, they turn their heels and they start being running back towards that hill while being chased by Thomas's men. Yeah. Now, on that hill, you've got the 16th Alabama and the 17th and 29th Tennessee. And they're going to start firing volleys at the oncoming blue wave there just to give this, get these other guys a chance to get the hell out of Dodge, right? That rebel retreat is going to turn into an all it's going to turn into an all out O.O. Howard situation <gasps> panic run at this point. Yep, I said it, okay. Booker, and, and that's our O.O. reference for this episode—a negative got one. It. Well, they're going to be running. They're going to throw their guns because they're slowing them down. This is a mass mass retreat. Now they've been fighting for three hours in the rain with guns that probably were prop guns. Okay, so they, they, <laughs> they did pretty good, right? They really were. I mean, it's like fighting a you know reenactment against one half as real, real you know real artillery and real ammo would be cool. By the way, I'd yeah. want to go watch that. Right? Yeah, I would, isn't that like in Stalingrad where they gave you? They were like, here, you take a stick and you take a gun. If the guy at the gun falls, you with the stick throw it down and pick up the gun is that like what that was a great story mary <laughs> but you know but the rebs are escaping back they're going back to the beach grove so at this point for all practical purposes um mill springs the battle is, is over logan's yeah. crossroads is over um the rebs are going to get back to beach grove and they're going to get behind those entrenchments that they originally built now thomas's men they're not done yet mary they're going to continue to bombard that rebel camp at beach grove as well as a steamboat that's on the river, a rebel steamboat that's sitting there. They're going to take shots at that too. Now, Crittenden, I don't want to say wisely, but he has common sense, realizes that his, his army is screwed. He orders a full withdrawal across the river. Um, and they do get there, but when they leave, they leave behind all their artillery. They yeah. leave their supply wagons, their horses, their the Rosewoods clowns. They leave everything back there, right? So when night falls on the 19th, they're leaving and they're leaving everything behind. Yep. And Crittenden Gen- is not happy with them He's, he's not. Um, we'll talk about that in a yeah. second. He, he, he can tell he's pissed. But 
at dawn on January 20th, the feds are going to slowly creep into that rebel camp and they're going to realize the discover that they're all vacated, they're gone, um, and that Crittenden and his men have safely made it across the river. Somewhere Lincoln's blaming me for this. I don't know how, but he probably But he is. probably is, yeah, because who's, you know, scapegoat? Mead, yep. Uh, one in doubt, you know. But back at Logan's Crossroads, the Union troops, um, they got to bury 100 dead yep. in this big mass grave. But they will, out of respect for an officer, take good care of Felix Zollicoffer's body. Mm-hmm. Now, they're going to have it embalmed by a Union surgeon. They're going to send it back to his home, his family, to be buried in, in a full military honors. He'll get buried back in Nashville, um, where he is. On his gravestone, Zollicoffer, old, at Old City Cemetery, Mary, it is inscribed, mm-hmm. first in the fight and first in the arms of the white-winged angel of glory, with his hero heart at the feet of God and his wounds to tell the story. That's wow. His That's quite the... So, yeah, now, <clears throat> the Union victory, okay, in, in Millsbury was, was a gigantic win for the North. Um, it was propped by the Northern press. Um, it was it was really their first good news they really had to report about the war, if you think yeah. about it. They broke that rebel line in Kentucky. Uh, it opened up Tennessee for an invasion. All those things we talked about. But as big as it was... It became overshadowed quickly soon later by Fort Donaldson and Fort Henry by exactly. U.S. Grant, right? It did, yeah. And now you mentioned you mentioned Crittenden, okay? Mm-hmm. And he was pissed off at this loss. So I'm Big sure you got a good quote you want to read, right? I do. He said, "From Mill Springs and on, on the first steps of my march, officers and men frightened by false rumors of the movement of the enemy, shamefully deserted and stealing horses and mules to ride, fled to Knoxville, Nashville, and other places in Tennessee." So he's not very, very happy. But he's also not going to be very, very happy that he doesn't have much of a career after this battle. Either. No, he's, he's going to be critting gone. gone here in a minute, right? Yeah. And now on the other side of the corn is George Thomas, who mm-hmm. is doing a full end zone celebration at this moment. Oh, big you time. You know what he does? You know who he writes? To, he writes George McClellan, of all people. Wow. That's who he writes. He writes to, to McClellan, the route of the enemy was complete. They threw away arms and dispersed through the mountain byways in the direction of Monticello, but are so demoralized, I don't believe they will make a stand short of Tennessee. So that's what he tells. Now, mm-hmm. um, the casualties we'll talk about, you know, it's it's pretty light overall. Out of 4,400 yep. Union guys, they lose about 250. The Rebs are going to lose about 550 out of 6,000. Yep. But the big loss was Zollicoffer. No, no question. Yeah. His death cost the Confederacy a very aggressive young officer and young uh, potential Absolutely. general. Absolutely. Yeah. And when you th- when you think about the future losses they're going to get, like City Johnson and people like that, mm-hmm. um, you know Van Dorn, even if you want to go all the way down to the calorie. Clayburn. This is a guy. This is a this is right. This this is a guy who's an other loss. Now, despite this lopsided loss, and it was this was a hammer and nail, ass kicking loss. For yeah, the Confederacy, right? it was very much. And it hardly gets talked about, you know, when you're looking at the Civil War and you're looking at Union victories, like, you know, nobody ever seems to mention Mill Springs or... Well, you know what's so funny? You know, you know how like certain places, like if, if someone, if a general gets, loses, has a bad battle, even if he gets killed, you kind of, they kind of hush it. But down there, Zollicoff is still a hero, right? Yep. You know, so despite this huge loss... They still consider him an absolute god. There's a large oak tree there was down there, Mary, on the Zolly site of his tree. death. Right. And it was the site of that hundred man trench, too. Yeah. And it's gonna be it's an unofficial monument they call the Zolly Tree. Now, in 1902, a woman named Dorothy Burton 
Mm-hmm. Not Beanpole Burton, Mary. <laughs> oh, Burton. I wish it was Beanpole Burton. <laughs> she would place an evergreen wreath around the trunk and begin an annual mm-hmm. tradition uh, when this wreath laying was, was done. It'd be taken over by the by Troop 79 of the local Boy Scout Troop, Mary. And the site is now called Zala Copper Park. Now, mm-hmm. in 1995, you know what happened? Tree fell down, Ooh. right? Tree went down in a storm. Um, but um, what happened was May 27, 1996, you know what they did? They found a seedling from the tree and replanted it, and they're growing a new tree. Oh, my so God. So that's growing. crazy. So, so Zolly Jr. is growing right Aww. there. So, so they're going to have the original Zolly tree is gone, but they have a new one growing. So so in the end, like we said, the Battle of Mill Spring is, is um, was a gigantic win for the Union cause. Um, it does get overshadowed by some of these other battles, yeah. unfortunately. But what it does... We talked many, many times about how these battles lead to other battles. What this one was, was that first step to Shiloh is really what it was. Yeah, okay? it was because it's pushing them like they are getting like basically their offensive in eastern Tennessee or whatever they were trying, what, what they were trying to do, do there. It's a it's a total collapse. So, you know, this this big, you see nothing but bad news in the East. Now you've yeah. got Millspring happen. Okay. Yeah. George Thomas, you're going to talk about him in a second here. Yeah. Should have been a hero, but not so much. Right. No. And you're going to have U.S. Grant winning on the other side of the river there um, with Henry and Donaldson. And it's going to begin that slow trek that's going to ultimately culminate in Shiloh, which you know what happens in April of, you know, of, of the Battle of Shiloh, 1862. Yeah. But Mill Springs is huge because what it does, kind of like maybe a you know Winchester is to Gettysburg type thing, yep. it helps keep perpetuate that momentum for the Union who yep. desperately need it and help them drive down that Western theater. So. How about that George Thomas, Mary? Well, that George Thomas. So, I mean, he obviously does really well at this battle. This is, you know, he's getting the first decisive Union victory. And yet, you know, when we look back at the Civil War, nobody talks about it. I mean, when you think of Thomas, you think of Chattanooga, Chickamauga, you know, all that. Um, One rebel soldier after Mill Springs said, well, we were doing pretty good fighting till old man Thomas rose up in his stirrups and we heard him holler out, attention creation by kingdom's right wheel. And then we knew you had us and it was no time to carry weight at all. So he knew that they were done. But what happens after this battle is um, Thomas does not get much credit for it. And Harper's Weekly wanted to put him on the front cover and they don't. And the reason that they don't is because Abraham Lincoln would not allow it. He said, let the Virginian wait. And that is why he doesn't end up on the cover of Harper's Weekly. And one could argue that Abraham Lincoln might be a reason why we don't know much about the Battle of Mill Springs and with George Henry Thomas being associated with it, with it when he's being, when he's saying, let the Virginian wait. He's got very much the same attitude towards Thomas that we see that Sherman and Grant have in 1863 when they are all at Chattanooga together. You know, I think if anything, the this is one battle that Thomas definitely needs to be remembered for. Is this decisive oh, union victory? That that's why they nicknamed him the Rock of Mill Springs. Yes, that's, that's, what, <laughs> that's what we call him here at Civil War Breakfast Club. Right, but that's but that's true. But it is, it is sad though. We think about it. This is a guy yep. who, you know. I don't want to say all he did is win, 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 no matter what. That's kind of not what he did. But he kind of did. He had a lot of success, but he had one strike on him 
and it was a big one that he was Virginian. Yeah. And for some reason, I don't know if they just never trusted him. And I think that's why it was easy to say, oh, he's slow. You know, meanwhile, the weather is the thing bogging him down. Like, I mean, he did a lot, like some of his campaigns are fought at the worst time, January, but he's still making it through. But yeah, you're going to get slowed up because of the weather. But when you look back to how he was at the end of the Civil War, and he doesn't live too long after the Civil War ends, unfortunately, he's very bitter. You know, he tells his wife to burn his papers after he passed. Like, you know, he's like, when I pass away, burn my papers. It's no wonder that he was so bitter if he's like, now, I don't know if you knew about the Harper's Weekly thing, but you have the president, president of the United States shoving him off of Harper's Weekly. Yet look how Lincoln praises Grant for Henry and Donaldson. It is just yeah, it, so it, it, like... It, it's tough and don't don't forget you know, a lot of we mentioned weather i mean granted yeah it took him 18 days to make a three-day milk run but there's a reason for it and there's a reason why in nashville he had to sit and wait and it was the weather and yeah. so you have you have grants and logan being sent out to tennessee to go relieve him because he's being so slow you feel bad for him because he kind of gets the crappy end of the stick yeah and it's all it's all because of where he's from but how long does it take grant to take vicksburg and some of that is because of mistakes he and sherman make along the way and lincoln's kind of like yeah. oh whatever <laughs> you know well they're sacred cows and they're they're not oh i know cows, yeah so, it's, it's um you know. this is one that really opened my eyes to um wow, this is why Thomas has this reputation that he does and why he was so bitter. And, you know, even Lincoln is playing into this, this, the whole like, oh, let's play the Virginian card against him because we can't trust him, right? Because look what Lee did. You know? Yeah, I mean, there was probably some truth. That, don't forget, in real time, in real time, it was probably, they were probably, I mean, they were getting oh, smoked in the East. Yeah. I mean, you, you, don't, you don't know who's who's your friends and who's your enemies in reality. You never never know when someone's going to flip, like you just said, you know, by Lee, right? Mm-hmm. But I think he earned his chops as the war went on, Absolutely. but he never got out of Lincoln's doghouse for whatever reason, never did. Well, and I don't know why he didn't earn it here at Mill Springs. He's he's done what Lincoln has wanted, which is a decisive victory. And Lincoln's like, don't put that man in Harper's Weekly. You know, instead, I think it was the 10th Indiana that ended up in there. And then in the article about it, I found some pictures about it. You have a pic, you have like, um, you know, a drawing of Stanton. And then I think there was one of like Zollicoffer or Crittenden in there. Like Thomas doesn't even get... A, well, that was probably picture. the Winfield. That was probably the Winfield Scott Hancock centerfold edition. So they didn't oh, want to God. overdo it. <laughs> oh, okay, exactly. But that's that. So no, it's it's a tough it's a tough story. But again, it's a, again politics plays a lot into this. We said this many many times, and he um, Lincoln himself was was certainly part of it as well. Yeah. But he had a war to win. He needed to you know he had to make sure he was um, having the right guys. But um, give Thomas credit, regardless of consistently with that kick me sign on him. He did his job, but he kept doing it. He didn't stop. Oh, he did. Yep. No, he he kept going, and I think it was probably because he felt like, okay, I know what these guys are up to, and I've got, I'm just going to keep going, and I don't want to give them any ounce of evidence that I might be for, you know, the other side, or I might deflect or whatever. And he just kept going and going, and going despite that, you know, yes. despite what's happening behind the scenes and all that, right? So speaking of behind the scenes and going, 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 what's next for us, Mary? So what's next for us? We have to decide. <laughs> what's ne- what oh, you mean, next? You, you mean surprise? You just haven't, you haven't decided yet? You, you're, I've given you a few suggestions and you you just need to get back to me and what you want to do. Please get back to I me. I did. I gave you a suggestion the other day and yeah. Anyway, so next Wednesday we are doing our Civil War Breakfast Club monthly roundtable and it will be at 6 p.m. Eastern time via Zoom. So if you want to attend Never Had Before, info at civilwarbreakfastclub.com. We don't have a set topic. We just get together and nerd out about the Civil War. 
Um, our next book club is not going to be until March the 30th. Um, we will be reading in the month of March, um, Nameless and Faceless Women of the Civil War by award-winning author and poet Lisa G. Samia, who's also a friend of ours. And then we will be having our Facebook Live on Saturday. So this episode will be dropping Saturday morning. So hopefully we'll see you all at our Facebook Live back at our usual time, 10 a.m. We've done it different times lately and managed to meet a few new people doing it that way. So that's pretty awesome. So we might mix it up again sometime soon. But yeah, this weekend, this week will be normal time. Thanks to get back on normal time. So any final words there from you, Fincheru? Well, thank you for being the awesome co-host you are. You bring it as you always do. And I'm very lucky to get to do this podcast with you. So thank you. I'm just a truck with a broken horn, Mary, but it's okay. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun episode. It's always fun to talk about the Western theater. We spent a lot of time in the West. We went North Carolina for a little while, but now we're back and we're going to bounce back and forth. Who knows what we'll do next week, but it'll be something fun. Yeah, it will be. So that'll be a good thing. So off we go. Everyone have a great weekend, everybody. Have a good time and have a safe, safe weekend. Have a great Super Bowl. Go Bengals. Yes, go Bengals. If you're in the NFL situation, and um, we'll talk to you all soon. So thanks for listening. Hope to see you on our roundtable next week, and hope to see you on our live next weekend. So off we go. Have a great, safe weekend. Stay warm. Peace out, everybody. Yep. Do, 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 do,